Hello all, I'm Ed, and I'm back again with another episode of And What Do You Do? Nothing more complicated than a chat about what someone does for a living. And this time, I'm talking to Cherry, a publisher, amongst other things. Very little housekeeping this time, so let's jump straight in. I'll be back at the end with a few other bits and pieces. Okay, well, I'm here with another guest, but tell me, who are you and what do you do? I'm Cherry, and among other things, I run Arachne Press. I also write myself, and I teach creative writing at City University. And when we're not in lockdown, I sing. You sing? I sing. Oh, Hold on, I think we'll maybe get to that one in a minute, but let's let's go back to the first one. So can, can you give me a little bit more about Arachne Press? Yeah, okay, so it's actually Arachne's eighth anniversary next month, and because we're named after a spider, eight is a little significant anniversary, so we're doing a big deal about it. But basically what we do, it, I say we, it's me. I, I am a sole trader, and... I hire people in to do bits and pieces that I'm either not capable of or find tedious. So mostly we publish short stories. That's where we started, um, but we've expanded out into poetry, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. Um, though I, I feel a bit of a, a fraud editing poets because although I write poetry, I really wouldn't call myself a poet. So often if there's something wrong with something, I know there's something wrong, but I don't know how to fix it. Um, right. But that gives the poet control because I'll just say, it's fine up until here and then something goes wrong. You'll know what it is. Go away. Sort it out. Um, okay. And they come back with something that's better than I could have suggested. So that makes me happy. Um, we've published a few children's novels. Um, and the other thing that we do as Arachne Press is we run the Solstice Shorts Festival on the shortest day of the year. So we've been doing that for since 2014, but I think that's going to have to be online this year, unfortunately. So go, going back to the start, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you begin something like that? You tend to think of... Foolishly. You know, <laughs> Foolishly, okay. It just seems, it seems <laughs> like such a monumental task. Uh, pu- publishing seems, to me at least, a sort of big, scary world. How do you, how do you break it into is, that? And it's very, very old fashioned in a lot of the ways that it behaves. There are times that I just think, this is insane. Why is it like this? Why can't it be different? But anyway, fit a peak, basically. I contacted my publisher and said, You published this book three years ago and I've not seen any money yet. Surely, to goodness, it's sold enough to be worth sending me something. And she says, Oh, yes, 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 it has. And I said, so send me an account, and she did, and they owed me something like three grand, but wow. she wasn't going to pay it because she couldn't afford to. And right, okay. She was about to republish a book of mine, and I said, right, well, you just stop right there. You're not republishing my book if you can't afford to pay me. I withdraw my permission, and this was you know, just before Christmas, and I was in a towering rage. Fury and what am I going to do about this? I could, yeah, sod it. I'll just do it myself. You were right with me swearing, by the way, Edward, because I do a lot. Yeah, that's, um, that's all right. <laughs> just warn you. And 
over Christmas because I wasn't at work and I was, so I had time to think about it and I thought right well I will do it myself I will actually republish this book myself it sold well enough to be justified she thought it was worth doing but then of course she wasn't expecting to have to pay me hmm. you know and I thought yeah I don't really want to be a self-publisher it's got connotations I'm not happy with and also I was about to be made redundant for the second time in five years so, you know, I had the time to put into it. And I thought, well, I think I want to publish other people. And I think I maybe want to publish a lot of other people. I want people to have conversations with. I, because at that point, I'd been working for home for three or four years. And, you know, you sort of spoke to people on the phone, but it wasn't the same. And so I, I will do anthologies because then there'll be 20 people in each book. That's lots of people to talk to. Uh, where am I going to get anthologies from? Where am I going to get the stories? How do I how do I reach these people? I wasn't in the least bit concerned about how to get books printed and the you know, and how to get it typeset and all of that. Probably should have been, but my immediate thought was where am I going to find the stories? And I'd been performed several times by Liars League in London and Leicester and Leeds and Hong Kong, uh, but London being my local one. So I emailed them and said, is anybody doing this already? Is is this an open door? And was given access to the entire archive, which was at that point six years worth of six stories a month. So there were quite a lot. So I had a conversation with them. We we narrowed it down to London stories and they helped me find those. And this was January 2012. And I'd said London because the Olympics were coming up and I thought, There'll be more people in London than there ever will be again, and they'll all want to take something home that has London on the front. So this is my plot. However, I had no idea about what the lead-in for this sort of thing is. I mean, I could have got the book arrived and ready to go in three months easily, but the book world expects to know at least, at this point, six months ahead of publication. So I was scurrying about trying to get a sales rep and... Uh, distributor in time to be able to say hi world this book is coming and of course I couldn't it was impossible <laughs> um, right. so it actually came out just in time for the Paralympics and did quite well uh, so I thought okay well we'll do this again so yeah so we, we actually registered the company at the point I knew it was definitely going to happen on the 28th of July and the first book was out by the end of August, can't actually remember what the date was now, but that so that's why August is our anniversary month, as it were. Do do you find, or did you find that there was also a lot of other people that wanted publishing to change, in the sense that you know were were people willing to help out quite often, or did you actually find that you really did have to force some things? I was I was actually surprised at how much people did help because I actually contacted the distributor that my publisher would use because. Strange though it might seem, I actually knew the man who ran it. Right. Because years ago, my very first proper, you know, full-time job was working in a bookshop in Baker Street. And he was at that point a rep for for a distributor. And then he set up his own distribution. So I knew him. So I knew he'd take my phone call. And I phoned him up and said, what do you think I should do? And would would you distribute my books for me? And, and he said, yes. And ultimately, I didn't go with them. Because, I can't remember why now, but there, there was a reason. 
And what I actually did was I joined the IPG, the Independent Publishers Guild group, I can't remember. I kind of assumed, because the sort of work I'd done before, that there might be sort of competition, but not, nothing of the kind. People were queuing up to give me good advice. Wow. And help and lovely, lovely people. And I'd go to meetings and I'd sit in the corner thinking, oh, I don't know anybody. And people would come up and say, hi, I don't think I've seen you before. <laughs> and, um, and being absolutely delightful. I found my, my printers who I still use and wouldn't move away from for unless they were to go bust or something because I loved them. By literally, I wrote to every single printer in the IPG's guide because they do this wonderful book of everything you need to know as an independent publisher. Thank you, IPG. And most of them didn't bother responding. Clays, who at the time were the biggest, you know, they did Penguin, you know, really serious. And they, I got an email back from them saying, too small, too soon. Right. So, to which my response was, everybody starts with their first book. Well, yeah. And they actually came back and they said, yes, but we are not the right published, we are not the right printer for you. Have you tried? X and X. Um, one of them I had already had and the other one I'd never heard of. So I tried them, sent them exactly the same email I sent everybody else, uh, which said things like, I'm very particular about my paper, but I don't know what anything's called. So okay. you'll need to tell me. And uh, I'm very particular about my uh, bindings. And I don't know what anything's called, apart from the fact I know I do not want perfect bound books ever. So if that's all you do, don't bother responding, which is probably why quite a few of them haven't. And they are the only people who phoned me up. And this lovely man, John, who no longer works there, sadly, uh, he phoned me up and he said, right, there's some samples in the post so that you know what, so that you will have, be able to have an informed conversation with us. And here are the three things that you should have asked us that you didn't know to. Wow, that's pretty good. And when the sample, I know, and when the samples arrived, you know, I was expecting bits of paper with this is blah, 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 blah written on it. He'd sent me books. And inside the books it was written, this this paper is so-and-so and the end papers are so-and-so and the, and, and, and the cover is this, that and the other one. And I thought, wow, I like these people. And they were only threepence per book more expensive than the cheapest one I'd already had. So I right. I'm going with them, and I've never regretted it. They are wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, that is very good uh, customer service, I suppose, or client service. I'm not, well, exactly. not sure what you would call because, it, but it's, yeah, it's a what, pretty. They're down in they're down in Cornwall, and the other people I was looking at were in Croydon, and I was thinking, well, if something went wrong, we'd go and kick them. And then I thought, but I've got a reasonable chance with people like this, nothing will go wrong, so yeah. I won't need to kick them. Wow. And indeed, the only time anything did go wrong, I phoned them up and I said, John, John, what have you done to my book? And, and unfortunately for them, it was the largest book we'd ever done. Uh, you know, it was a real fat book, so it was a lot and lot of pages. And he said, oh, he said, it's a new machine. I think the, the sheets were going through too fast. And I said, well, I can't use this. You're going to have to reprint. And there was a slight gulp. I'll go and talk to the boss, and he phoned back to her and said, it's on the press now. We're redoing it. All right. Well, 
That's the kind of people you want to deal with every day. So that was that was my most expensive contract with them, and they had to do it twice. <laughs> so having been spurred on to to start this business and the success of the, the the first project coming together, really, how did you find authors for the next set? By that stage, were people coming to you, or did you have to f- go and find them? It, I was still going and finding them, but because I'd now got this cast iron link with Lysley, who know lots of writers, though I wasn't doing a collaboration with them on this on the second book, which was Stations. That started out, it was a very, very specific call. And what I have found is when you're a small publisher, the more specific you can be about what you're looking for and what the market is, the better it sells. It still is our bestseller stations. I sell a few every year, even now, eight years later. And the the sort of the way that came about was where I live backs onto what is now the the overground uh, was the East London line, and while they were turning it into the overground, we hardly slept because every single night until five o'clock in the morning they were out there hammering and sawing and right. angle grinding and oh it was hell, and I hated them with a vengeance. And then they started running the trains and I had to eat my words because I could get to places that I would not bother going to because it was too much hassle to get home from. You know, you didn't go to concerts at the Union Chapel because it was going to take you forever to get home. And suddenly I could do it in 40 minutes. And my writing group met in a cafe opposite Brockley Station, which is on the same line. And we were having a conversation about how wonderful the overground was and how bad we felt about how much time we had spent cursing. And sort of slightly facetiously, one of a number said, oh, let's write about trains tonight then. And we did. And by the end of the evening, I said, you know, I think this might have legs. So we, I put a call out to everywhere I could think of that the, the Arts Council have a post your opportunities thing, which is wonderful. I find all sorts of mad things on there. And uh, Facebook has loads of writers' groups and you know, things like that. And National Association of Writers in Education are my sort of go-to places if, if at first call. And because it was so specific, it was quite good because people knew what I was asking for. And so what I said was, we want, a, we want to end up with a story for every station between Highbury and Islington and West Croydon Crystal Palace and New Cross because the line splits at the bottom. Surprise, surprise, we got lots and lots and lots of stories for Shoreditch. <laughs> okay. And nobody wanted to do Haggerston. I mean, I mean, poor old Haggerston, what's wrong with Haggerston? And in the end, we had to use one of the New Cross stories for Haggerston because it, could, it, it wasn't that specific. It was about being on a relatively new station and... I emailed the writer and said, you've never been to New Cross, have you? This is not what that station's like. But Haggerston is. Do you mind if we move you? So we did that, and we had a riot with that. We um, we launched it at the Brunel Tunnel Museum because the line goes through the Brunel Tunnel. Right. And we had a signing at the London Transport Museum, and we did promotional photo shoot on the line, I got as many of the authors as could onto the same train 
from Crystal Palace because hardly anybody gets on at Crystal Palace and so we could take over one end and I just took photos of this entire carriage of full of people reading the same book, which is quite fun. Well, I, I'm kind of interested in that, you know, you're saying that being specific was really Im- important for that. Talking mm. more generally, though, I'm just wondering, this is a question I like to often uh, often ask, have you seen any changes in the last five years or can you see anything coming down the line in the next five years within the world of publishing? Have there been any shifts? I mean, yes. Okay. There's not so much in publishing, but in book selling, like they want to know even sooner. Now last year, my sales reps phoned me in February and said, so Waterstones want to know what your Christmas book is going to be. Wow. Okay. And I start, and I sort of tore my hair. I said, "For heaven's sake, I haven't even quite put my Christmas tree away." <laughs> you know, sort of, it was that sort of level. And you know, over the eight years I've been doing this, it went from being six months to nine months. Now it's practically a year ahead that they need to know, or, or your book doesn't get on the shelves. Which means that I really have to plan ahead in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with. To be honest, I'm a bit of a Oh, here's a good idea. Let's run with this sort of person, really, rather than planning. And also, it's difficult to say to an author, "Yes, we'll take your book, but we're not going to print. We're not going to publish it for three years, because that's where we're on in our planning, which is what sure. I'm having to do. Because you know, they want instant gratification, bless them. And who can blame them? And even in the best regulated systems, it takes a minimum of a year to do it properly." and actually get it into the bookshops. as a factory. You can produce a book. If you're going to sell it, you have to prepare. But the other thing that's really beginning to get traction is audiobooks, uh, which unfortunately are horrendously expensive to produce. We've done one. We did our shortest book as an experiment, got the poet to read her own poems because she does it fantastically, and that meant we didn't have to pay her okay. an actor. And it still cost twice what the production for the book had been. And getting it into the distribution stream was actually quite complicated and involved contracts with America, which is the sort of thing that you think, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Because there are no aggregators in this country. They're all American, so you have to go to them first to get it anywhere, unless you're going to make individual contracts with every single possible stream, and I wasn't going to do that. Right. And I think we've sold five copies. So, you know, it's not working for us, but with lockdown and all of this, uh, I'm very much thinking my next big plan is going to have to be which of these books would work as audio books and how do I get them there? Because that is how people are consuming books a lot at the moment. and. You know, had we had audiobooks available at the beginning of this, I think they might have sold. You know, I don't normally do ebooks of the poetry because the formatting is such a bind. But as soon as we knew that bookshops were going to be shut, that I, I spent a week getting books ready to go to, go to be converted and we got them converted in super fast time. And I think within a month, every single one of our poetry books have been converted. Because I had to spend a lot of time finicking with them to get them so that the formatting was something like what the poet intended. <laughs> um, because 
if people are changing the size of the, of the font and things, then there's nothing you can do about that. But at least I can get the page breaks in the right place and that sort of thing. So this might come across as, as a bit ignorant, but do you consider audiobooks to be the same sort of thing? In my mind, it's almost, or the, you might be able to argue that they're like a broadcast of something. You talked about the idea of you know being able to get the poet to to um, perform their own work rather than get an actor in, but in the same way that if you broadcast something out on the radio, <laughs> sorry, I yeah, no, I, 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 I get I get your drift. Is, is, is it drama or is, yeah. Or is it, yeah, I think with poetry you could make a case for audiobooks being like a drama because it's much more performative in itself, right. And this, um, and one of the reasons I was absolutely fine with having the poet read it was I knew she would be doing it brilliantly because I have seen her do it live. Um, and sure. poets, poets are actually much more proactive about getting out and about and, and reading their poetry or sometimes even performing it from memory, which is quite something I really couldn't manage that. The interesting thing about audiobooks, I, mean, I, I listen to them occasionally. I, accidentally got an audible you know the way you do if you forget to say no to something and sort of I'll stick with right. it I have found that a darn good book can be ruined by the wrong reader um okay. I have listened to several where I have been here and I've been thinking yeah you've got the emphasis in the wrong place on this line and it's distracting me and this isn't the voice I want in my ear, and um, you know, because you don't get to choose. It's who it is. Sure. Um, if that was on, if if it's on the radio and you weren't enjoying, it, you just turn it off. When you've bought the book, you tend to plough on a bit further before you give up. Uh, and, and the yeah. most annoying thing I found with with audio books is that if you go to sleep listening to them, you've got no idea where you went to sleep. Whereas with a broadcast, it would stop at the end of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you'd be able to, you could say it's about a quarter of an hour in, you know, or whatever. I went to sleep in the middle of Hamlet, having sobbed my heart out. I was lying in bed with my eyes pulled with water because it's such a distressing book. And I think this is a really stupid thing to listen to when you're trying to go to sleep and promptly went to sleep and miss uh, and when I woke up, the entire book had been playing in my ear un- un- unheard. And I had absolutely no idea where I got to, and I've not gone back to it. Partly because I found it such a distressing book, and I just, I'm not in the right frame of mind, really. I think listening to a book about somebody dying of the plague during this was not a good idea. But <laughs> that's just me. Possibly. Um, <laughs> possibly not. So I don't know, is the short answer, but because I work with a lot of actors, I do have some fairly strong ideas about how things should be read. And I think if and when we do somehow get hold of the money to be able to do this, even if they don't sell, it'll be an interesting project. I would very definitely not be letting them loose on it. I would be saying, okay, and it would be as though it were for performance. You know, we would rehearse it. We wouldn't just sit them in a booth with the book and say, off you go, uh, because it doesn't work. Sure. And even with a, you know, a 30, 40, I think there were, 40, 42 poems in Kate's book, most of them a page or two pages at most. That took all day to record. 
So the idea of recording the, the book that we had to have reprinted, which is 360-odd pages of very dense novel, that one we will not be doing as an audio book. It would just it would cost thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to record. It's there's no way we'd ever make the money back. Right. Yeah, we're we're not well, we're not hatchet. We haven't got the sort of book that is bought in gazillions and you can afford to risk it. Well, I think we've we've probably only really just scratched the surface of uh, the many things you're involved in. Mm-hmm. We didn't even get to really talk about singing. And I think I would like to talk to you again about some of the other stuff as well. But I think we've just got time for, I've I've got a daft question for you. So the setup is this, okay? I'm afraid to say you can no longer be a publisher, but I'm going to give you a selection of three jobs that you can take instead. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know which one of these jobs you would like and why. Okay. I mean, it could be that they're all completely unsuitable, or you might even like all of them but I'll try and pick three random ones, okay? So you can't be a publisher anymore, but you can be a clothes designer. You can design clothes. Uh, You can be uh, a plumber, or you can can be a phone engineer. Oh, God. Okay. Um, So that's my my random selection. Okay, so it's snog, marry, avoid, isn't it? No way would I be a phone engineer. I worked in IT for years, and I've done that. Thank you. Got the T-shirt, not going back. Um, plumbing, okay. potentially. Yeah. I mean, I've I worked in housing for years, and I used to when I, when I used to go around to visit my tenants, I always used to take a screwdriver with me because there'd always be something that they were saying, and this doesn't work, and it'd be something just needed tightening up, and I would do that. So plumbing. I would be entirely capable of, apart from that physically I'm not up to it anymore because my shoulders dislocate at the drop of a hat. And I can imagine lying on one's back under un, under a, a sink trying to get some, something in, into place would not be a happy place for my shoulders. Um, so I think that probably leaves me with the clothes designing. Um, I used to make my own clothes once upon a time. I still own a sewing machine. And lockdown-wise, I have been buying a great deal of rather gorgeous material with the intention of doing something with it, but I haven't done the something yet. I've just been piling it up in corners and stroking it. <laughs> Maybe that is the next move. So everything's in place, is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, um, I'm ready. You could start the closer. <laughs> yeah, I'm planning to make myself a winter dressing gown from some very beautiful hand-block-printed material I bought that Kate had come from Thailand. I didn't realise she was in Thailand when I ordered it, but hey, I've got it in two different colourways and I haven't got enough for a dressing gown. So I said, if I can do a sort of patchworky event with this and make myself a huge, padded, floor-length, glamorous, exotic and slightly ridiculous dressing gown. Because basically, I just need to cut a T out. You know, it doesn't need any fitting. <laughs> well, I mean, you started uh, publishing from scratch. Well, so, I know. You know, I know. start with a dressing gown and you could you could move on to anything, I suppose, in clothes design. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know that I want to, but I certainly could. Because one of the things, yeah, there is a little bit of coercion in this yes, in this question. I mean, yes, I mean, one of the things <laughs> you lose one about, job and you're forced to yes, take another one. About the publishing thing was, yeah, this this was career four five. You know, I do a sort of a, a nine to eleven year slot of something, and then I do another nine to eleven year slot of something. 
my boredom factor is. I think there's a level at once I'm good at something and I've stopped learning, I start to get bored. Right. So I, I, I need something that's constantly stimulating me and and that's partly why I'm sort of thinking, Oh yeah, maybe audiobooks because there's a whole new learning set there I can I can get my teeth into. Brilliant. Well on that note, thank you very much for speaking to me uh, today, Cherry. Uh, and I hope you have, well, have a great uh, rest of the day. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. There we go. My thanks to Cherry, of course, for the interview. And special thanks for the times uh, when I really didn't articulate myself very well at all. I enjoyed our chat a great deal. It was clear there were lots of other things that we could have delved into. At the risk of pestering her, I'm going to try and interview Cherry again as soon as I can. I definitely like to get into our own experiences as an author, for one. And, you know, we really didn't get to talk about her singing. I wonder what that's about. Okay, links, plugs, and that sort of thing. First up, Cherry herself. You should check out Arachne Press at arachnepress.com. Makes sense. Next, uh, Liars League was mentioned. I hadn't heard of them before, but it seems that I've been missing out. They're at liarsleague.com and they're a multi-city and indeed multi-country group putting on fiction readings with professional actors. They have all sorts of resources and extensive archives, so uh, definitely check them out too. Next, just because it did bother me, uh, Cherry referred to what I can confirm is the Independent Publishers Guild in the UK. That's independentpublishersguild.com. Well, I should probably plug my own stuff, I suppose. And what do you do podcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch. And why not visit and what do you do.co.uk? That's a rhetorical question. Let's not pull at that thread. And with that, we're done for another episode. Back soon ish with more. Take care. Speak soon. Thank you.